Well, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 1, that'll be on page 860 if you're using the Pew Bibles. John chapter 1, be verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most famous poems about time is William Shakespeare's Sonnet 19. It reads this, devouring time, blunt thou the lion's paws, and make the earth devour her own sweet brood. Pluck the keen teeth from the fierce tiger's jaws, and burn the long-lived phoenix in her blood. Make glad and sorry seasons as thou fleets, and do whate'er thou wilt, swift-footed time. To the wide world and all her fading sweets, But I forbid thee one more heinous crime. Oh, carve not with thy hours my love's fair brow, nor draw no lines there with thine antique pen. Him in thy course untainted do allow for beauty's pattern to succeeding men. Yet do thy worst, old time, despite thy wrong. My love shall in my verse ever live young. Is he the sonnet? speaks of the fact that time devours all. It outlives both lion's paws and tiger's jaws. It carries on through seasons of joy and sorrow. And after acknowledging the power of time, the poet asks time not to carve into love's brow, pleading that no lines would be drawn in love with time's antique pen. Love is wanted to remain beautiful, the poet says. And yet the last two lines of the sonnet change, and all of a sudden there's this incredible concession that's given. The poet says, do thy worst, because time can't be stopped. So it says, go ahead and do your wrong of bringing beauty's love to fade. Because, the poet claims, my love will remain unchanged in these verses devouring time. It consumes all. But the beauty of the, poet, uh, the poem is it, it just reminds us of the fact that love doesn't have to age. Uh, I think I speak for many when I say that I am so grateful for the saints in this church whose marriages are a picture of this poem. Long years of unfading love. Having lived through times and trials and love's antique pen may have carved all sorts of things on your lives, you remain true to each other. And so we are grateful for your testimony to us. 
And yet, while we are grateful for the witness of many faithful saints and their marriages and enduring love, the simple fact is time devours. Every temporal thing will one day be taken from us. Uh, Upon our death, time will do whate'er it wilt. Both the lover and the beloved will one day fall to death. Time. It is unshakable. It is unavoidable. Well, as we come to the end of one more year, our last Sunday of 2022, I thought it appropriate to look at this topic of time, and particularly in this account of John's gospel. You see, unlike the other gospel accounts, John doesn't begin in time. He doesn't begin with the temporal events of Jesus' life, or as we've just spent the previous weeks looking at the events leading up to his birth in the account of Luke. No, John starts in eternity past. If you look at verse 1 of this chapter, the famous verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, John starts before there was time, and he goes on to speak of the one who created all things, In verse 3, nothing that is created was not created by him, which means time itself, space and time, sprang into being when the word made flesh, before he made, was made flesh, spoke. So in his famous prologue, John tells of how the eternal God chose to both create time, and then starting in our passage of verse 14, how he chose to enter into time in the person of the Son. And so we will consider this morning the argument of this text that the eternal God is only truly known through Jesus. So look to the Son. And we'll walk through these verses under the following three points. The eternal tabernacler, the faithfulness giver, and the Father revealer. Look again at verses 14 and 15 with me. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, uh, many Bibles will put verse 15 into parentheses. Maybe your Bible has that, uh, newer translations in particular. There's a couple reasons it does that. On the one hand, as we'll see when we get to our second point, it's because verse 16 is drawing and and unpacking verse 14. Uh, It also has something to do with the structure of John's first 18 verses of his book. But another reason why is because John is testifying in time about something that verse 14 tells us happened before and in time. Uh, so, So this eternal event that all of a sudden came into time in the word being made flesh. John testified about it. But did you catch his message? How his message has the challenge of time? He says there in verse 15, this one I spoke about who came after me because he was before me. <laughs> That's a rather strange message, is it not? I'm telling you about the one who is after me, but really was before me. This is the challenge of time. Uh, And what John is saying is that though Jesus was born shortly after me, well, that wasn't his genesis. That wasn't his beginning. 
Now, his beginning was from much, much earlier. The eternal word, the creator God, has taken on flesh. See, in a society where uh, elders are particularly honored, being a little bit older might be important. But John's message is one that says, no, no, no. (laughs) Though he might be temporally younger, he is eternally superior and older. Well, then verse 14 gives us this account of the eternal becoming temporal. Uh, The NIV reads, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, Literally, it comes from the Greek verb for tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. And if you're someone who's familiar with the Old Testament stories of the Exodus and the building of the tabernacle, that should bring all this history. If you're not familiar with those stories, come back next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be beginning a study of the book of Exodus, and we'll consider the tabernacle in some detail. But he says this tabernacle, this tabernacling amongst us, as it were, is drawing with it this imagery from the Old Testament. It is the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. Uh, Later on in the book of Numbers, we we learn that the, the tabernacle was in the middle of the 12 tribes. Showing God's presence was in the middle of his people, in their midst. And in the Exodus, over and over again, we learn all these details about the tabernacle. They seem so unnecessary. But God's presence with his people was of such importance that they're spelled out in great detail. Again, we'll look at those as we get through our study. But one of the things in Exodus that's so important, and it culminates in the tabernacle, it ends the whole book with God's presence there in that tabernacle, is the leading up to it is all these theophanies, these God appearings. First, he appears in a burning bush, and then he appears in plagues, and he appears on Mount Sinai, and finally fills the tabernacle itself. But here, we're told, God tabernacled in flesh. He took on flesh. And by taking on flesh, it says the glory of the one and only eternal Son of God who came from the Father was seen. Now, we'll think more about that glory and the fullness of grace and truth in our second point. But the point that John is making is this. If God's glory was seen in the burning bush and in the plagues and on Mount Sinai and finally in the tabernacle, how much more is it seen in God's glory, enfleshed. How much more is God's glory seen in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh? How much greater is the deliverance He brings than the deliverance that God's glory in the Old Covenant brought? And this theme of God's presence with us is so key to John's gospel, actually. If you were to flip the page, go ahead and flip the page to John 2. Uh, We'll get there. But Jesus goes into the temple, the the physical tabernacle uh, had been done away with, and now there's this great big temple. And he flips over tables because he says, my father's house was to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves, a market for buying and selling. And after flipping tables, the leaders and authorities come to him and say, well, by whose authority do you flip these tables over? Well, Jesus answers there in verse 19. Here's the authority I'll give you, the sign that I'll give you. If you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. And they responded, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? 
But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Notice, Jesus says, I'm the temple. There is never going to be another time when God's presence is limited to a building because it's come in a person. If you were to actually flip to John 4, you don't need to. Go back to John 1, actually. But in John 4, Jesus has this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And they're having a debate over, well, where's the right place to worship? See, we Samaritans, we worship here in the north. You Jews, you worship down there in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, make sure you understand. The Jews were right to worship in Jerusalem. But the time is coming, and now is, when never again will the worship of God be bound up to a mountain and to a tent or a building. No, now the worship of God will take place in spirit and truth. Because once God's presence is enfleshed, it's never bound to a building again. That's what is at stake when we speak of this word made flesh. Never again will God be worshipped in any other way than through this one who is tabernacling among us. This is what verse 15 is saying John testified to. The eternal one made flesh, tabernacling amongst us. But maybe you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian. Uh, John is certainly not the only witness. I've said throughout this Advent series that uh, this Advent, this coming of God, the Son, to become incarnate, has been testified to in history. It wasn't hidden. As a matter of fact, there are many, many testimonies outside of the Bible as well that speak about Jesus' coming. Uh, here's a couple. Josephus was a Jewish-born historian. Uh, he was born in 37 AD. And during the Roman and Jewish War, he surrendered to General Vespasian. And later he wrote a book seeking to justify why it was he left his people and joined Rome. And in that book, he tells about Jesus' life and ministry. He was no Christian. He was a Jew who left to go join and be with the Romans. But as a historian, he couldn't ignore this event that had so shaped that area. And it spread even up into Rome. Uh, one professor of ancient history, Edwin Yamauchi, at uh, Miami University has said that no scholar has been able to successfully dispute Josephus' witness. Friends, this wasn't done in a corner. The Word made flesh came into space-time history. Uh, you can also go read Tacitus, another Roman historian, and he references Jesus' crucifixion. Pliny the Younger, a governor, he, he writes about those who honor Christ as God. Did you know there's even historical records that confirm around the Mediterranean the darkness that occurred while Jesus was on the cross? There's references to it. that The whole land went dark in ancient history books. So friend, as John here witnesses to the Word made flesh, if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, have you considered these witnesses? Have you considered John's witnesses and the, the Gospel's witnesses? but also the, the ones in the secular world as well. You see, Shakespeare's sonnet bears repeating. Time will devour all. You don't have an eternal number of days to consider these things. We're coming to the end of another year. Isn't it worth considering the possibility that the eternal came into time and invites us to something beyond time? 
You see, John, in all Christian sense, this is our message. That the eternal word took on flesh. And the testimony is there. So friend, I would encourage you to search these things out. I'd love to meet with you and talk to you if you'd like to think on these things more. But this is what John begins in his prologue and in his telling us of the incarnation John's way is the eternal has taken on flesh in the Son. But he didn't only take on flesh. He's also the fullness giver, our second point. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Truth came through Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, Do you see the connection back to verse 14? Verse 14 said that this word made flesh was full of grace and truth. Verse 16 begins, from his fullness, out of his fullness. And so we're unpacking further what it means in verse 14, that the word made flesh came full of grace and truth. Well, this glory of the Son incarnate is specifically what he's referring to. And here, the we all has shifted. The we in verse 14 was John and his contemporaries. We all beheld his glory. And now the we all is all those who heard the testimony of John and those like John in verse 15. See how the the argument is progressing through the passage. Here in verse 16 speaks to all of those who have heard about this word made flesh and come to trust in him. And so John, writing some 50 or so years maybe after Christ died and buried and was raised and ascended, He says, we are those who've received this testimony about him. From his fullness we have received grace in place of a grace already given, the NIV has. Now, if you have another Bible, it probably says grace upon grace. Uh, Some translations say grace for grace. Uh, The the Greek is karen anti-karatos, or woodenly grace anti-grace. Now you see why there's a trouble with translating it. Anti in, in opposition to, uh, in, in place of? Well, the NIV 2011 is the only Bible that I found that actually renders this the right way. Because nowhere else in ancient Greek literature that we have is that word anti upon or for. It always is rendered in place of, instead of. But what does it mean that we have grace in place of grace? I mean, that's a challenging little phrase, is it not? Well, that's why verse 17 begins with the for, explaining or giving us the grounds for what have just been said. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see the contrast being made there? Now, the best way to understand this phrase is actually to go back to Exodus. So I'm going to let you do some Bible work. Go back to Exodus chapter 33. If you have a pew Bible, it'll be on page 72. But this is what John is referring to. And if we don't have this background with us, it can be a little challenging to understand. Exodus 32 through 34 is the section where it begins with the worship of the golden calf. And then at that point, God says, that's it. These people are just too wicked. Moses, you go ahead and take them up to the promised land. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us. Because Moses knows without the presence of God. He's ruined. And so he finally, after Moses interceding for the people, God relents and says, okay, I'll go with you. And Moses asks one more question. Well, if you'll go, would you 
would you let me see your glory? Give me the assurance that you're going to go, that I'll know that you're going to stay with us. Show me your glory. So look at Exodus 33, 17 through 23, and we see this, the Lord's response. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, uh, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in the rock and cover you over with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the scene that John is, is drawing on here in this passage. Uh, see, God explains there's no one who can see his full glory He's going to put him in the cleft and kind of hide him and let him see just a bit of the afterglow as he passes by. And God does so. He, he puts Moses in the cleft and, and he declares, look at verses uh, 34, verses 5 through 7. This is what the Lord does. He comes down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name to him. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So God declares his glory, in particular, that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We've got to do a little more language work. Those two Hebrew words are really tricky to translate. Chesed ve'emet. Chesed, you probably heard, is covenant love, steadfast love. It, it really can be rendered gracious love. Uh, in other words, it's speaking to the fact that it, it's a love that cannot be demanded. It's a love that overflows from God's goodness. And emet, well, eh, faithfulness is a fine translation. It can mean firmness, but it can also mean truth. Those two words are paired together over and over again in the Old Testament to speak of God, of his goodness, of his character. He's the God of chesed vemet. John translates them grace and truth. That's what he's saying in this passage. We can flip back to John because John is picking up this theme of God dwelling with his people, of God's glory being seen just as it was with Moses. And that's what he means when he says well, this word made flesh is full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace in place of a grace already given. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard sermons where people are like, grace upon grace and just more and more grace. And that's, of course, true. But nothing that John is talking about has anything to do with that. The Old Testament Exodus background is essential because what he's really saying is, what did Moses get? He got a covenant for the people. So the old covenant was a gracious covenant. We sometimes think of the law as, well, the law is the law and grace is over here. But that's not the way that Moses is understanding it at all. Remember, God delivers them and then gives them the law and the covenant. No, the, the Mosaic covenant was a gracious covenant. But when the word became flesh, 
the one full of grace and truth, well, from his fullness, we receive grace in place of grace already given. See, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The chesed vemet, the, the abounding gift of God's grace to his people. So this new covenant is what John is picturing as being brought, which means that he's picturing Jesus and this eternal coming into time as the very reality that all the Old Testament pointed to, as what Moses hoped for but could only see in pass, just a little fading glow. It's all here. They see it incredibly. But the problem with this grace concept is that it's a challenging one for us. I mean, if we're being honest, uh, grace makes you uncomfortable if you think about it for long. Because what is grace but the declaration that we are not just undeserving but ill-deserving? We deserve something far, far worse. We deserve judgment. See, that's the thing about grace. It can make us uncomfortable with the fact that it heightens our sin. So this revelation of Jesus as the grace in place of grace, it first and foremost should start with the fact that we are undeserving and ill-deserving. But grace can also make us uncomfortable because when you see people saved that you wonder, should that person be saved? I mean, if you're honest, have you ever had that feeling? Let me tell you a story to make sure you feel this way. <laughs> Reverend, uh, Reverend Henry Garricky was called by the U.S. Army, Army to be a chaplain to Nazi commanders awaiting their trial at Nuremberg. Picture this. His biographer writes that he was terrified by the prospect, that he was supposed to comfort Nazis who had caused so much sin and heartache. They, they asked him to minister to those who had taken millions of lives. He was asked to kneel down with the architects of the Holocaust and to calm their spirits as they faced death. The author writes, with images of Dachau fresh in his memory, Gericke had to decide if he could share his faith, the thing he held most dear in his life, with the men who'd given orders to construct such a place. Well, in the end, Gericke accepted the assignment. And by the unthinkable mercy of God, he recounts many of those prisoners came to Christ, one of whom was Wilhelm Keitel, second in command to Hitler himself over the army of Germany. And just before he went to be hanged, he recounted a prayer from his childhood. Christ's blood and judgment are my adornment and robe of honor. Therein I will stand before God when I go to heaven. Amen. If you're anything like me, don't you just kind of wonder, really? Are those real conversions? I mean, deathbed conversions can happen, but come on. The architects of the Holocaust? Gericke received hate mail. Uh, he, he was called a Nazi lover. But friends, the message of Christmas, of grace in place of a grace already given, is that there is no one beyond the reach of our God and King. Recoiling at the possibility of salvation of others or, or doubting it, of course God only knows who true converts are, yes, but, but that tendency in us it just reveals deep within us how we tend to think we don't need quite as much grace as the next guy, if we're being honest. It, it often reveals this belief that we're somehow just not quite as bad 
as maybe someone else. But friends, John Newton was exactly right when he said that, friends, we begin this Christian life by his amazing grace. And by his amazing grace, he will lead us home. See, the glory of God's grace displayed in the cross and resurrection is the message that God can save and does save those who are ill-deserving. And that includes us. As one commentator put it, the old covenant was a gracious covenant, but in this new covenant, the ultimate grace comes. Notice the progression of the prologue. It has moved from a God who has given to his people grace to a God who has come to his people as grace incarnate. Well, that brings us to our last point, the Father Revealer. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. Well, this verse is continuing to draw from those themes from Exodus, when God told Moses, no one can see my face. John says the same thing here. No one has ever seen God. They couldn't. The one and only Son is the one exception. Now, again, if, if you grew up with the King James Bible, you're probably used to the only begotten Son. Uh, most modern translations have only begotten God or one and only God. The reason for that is we have some different Greek manuscript traditions, and one of them have the word Son, and one of them has the word God. Well, the oldest manuscripts have God. That's why there's a difference. And that's why if you grew up on the King James, you think, wait a minute, why they take out the only begotten Son? Uh, but John makes it clear, and the NIV does a good job of, of translating it for us. No one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God. And then it says, is in closest relationship. Literally, it's at the bosom of the Father. Speaking of the fact that there is no way to get closer. They have the closest of relationships. Which is to say that John starts his gospel with the Trinity. The only way to understand this gospel is to understand that God has revealed himself as Trinity. And the Son, who is at the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. One last Greek word for you today. That word, which we translate, he has made him known, is the word exegesita. It's where we get our word exegesis from, which is expositing what the scripture means. Don't read into it, you read out of it. You exegete it instead of reading into it. It can also be translated to give a narrative of. So we would be right in saying Jesus exegetes the Father. He gives a narrative of the Father. And the reason I chose this text for this morning on Christmas, even though it's a bit unorthodox of a Christmas sermon, is this. Friend, if you want to know the Father, you have to look at the Son. That's what it says. Now, there's a few practical reasons why this might be important for us. First, I imagine a room like this, there's many here who had wonderful fathers that you are grateful for. But there's others who the idea of fatherhood probably can make it hard to think about God as father. The, the hands and words that we're supposed to help and heal and protect can cause great pain and harm. And so sometimes thinking of God as father can create challenges for some. I imagine for others in this room, maybe you're used to reading the Old Testament and you, you kind of see the, the cranky side of God. That's a horrible way to put it. But maybe that's the, the kind of judgmental God. 
I mean, he always has all these you know, rules and laws, and he's bringing plagues. And, but Jesus is kind of the nice, you know, gentle, meek, and lowly, right? The good shepherd. But what John says is the only way to understand God at all, and God as Father, is to look at the Son. He has made him known. So, friends, if, if you're nervous about the idea of God as Father particularly around the holidays. Maybe they bring up memories of horrible Christmases. Look at the sun. Friend, if you have ever had a temptation to read the Old Testament and see, ah, that God doesn't seem as friendly. Uh, the, the call of John is, look at the sun. Because Father and Son are together, eternally, with the Spirit. And they sent the Son into time. There's one divine will working out this plan. So again, friend, if you have those worries, those concerns about Father or the Old Testament God, as it were, there is no difference. There's only one God. And the eternal God is known truly by looking at Jesus alone. As a matter of fact, John's gospel goes on to deal with this theme again and again. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but in John chapter 14, this same theme of, of the Son revealing the Father comes up again. And it seems to contradict our passage. Because uh, in John 14, the first few verses, what happens is Jesus is telling his disciples that he has to go. And in the midst of telling them he, he's going to leave, he says, but you know where I'm going. Well, no, we don't. And Philip says, well, if, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus' response is this, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You see, the eternal God is only truly known through Jesus. So look to the Son. On Christmas morning, we celebrate that, of course. But it's a good reminder, as we come to the end of this year and begin another one, that the eternal God sent his Son into time to reveal himself as the eternal God. So don't let earthly fathers who failed or a poor reading of the Old Testament confuse you. Don't let painful holiday memories or broken family relationships shade your understanding of the eternal God. Look to the Son. Look to Him who revealed God, the Father. The Father who so loved the world that He gave. Isn't that the verse we all memorize as kids? God so loved, He gave. That's the Father. So look to the Son given by the Father whose life and death and resurrection remind us of this Father's heart. Christmas is not only about celebrating the gift of the Son, it's celebrating the gift of the giver of the Son, the eternal God himself, who sent the Son to take on flesh for us. See, this, friends, is the only gift that time's ancient pin cannot carve lines into. And yet, praise God, that it is the gift gloriously preserved in these verses too. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the fact that he reveals you to us, that you are the God who so loved that you gave. And so, Lord, would you help us to trust in you, the one who is not bound by time and change, and yet who calls us to trust in the one who came into time so that we can trust you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.